Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jeff Hamilton's on the show today. Jeff is a multi-instrumentalist, audio recording engineer, live audio engineer, tour manager, stage tech, and touring sideman for bands like Uriah Heep and Dennis DeYoung from Styx. He's also a member of multiple bands, one of which is about to embark on an international tour with dates in Montreal, Canada and Moscow, Russia. Jeff played with the Violent Femmes for 10 years and also served as their producer and audio engineer on their We Can Do Anything album and on their Happy New Year EP. If you grew up in the 80s or even the 90s, you probably remember the Violent Femmes hits Blister in the Sun and Add It Up, which many say defined the early to mid-80s sound and vibe with a minimalist style of punk rock that really transcended punk and made its way into the musical consciousness of just about every young person from that era. In this interview, we hear how Jeff met the Femmes and was brought in as a touring musician with them, as well as their audio engineer and producer for studio albums. We also hear about Jeff's current band, Metallica, an internationally acclaimed Metallica Beatles tribute band that really defies explanation in words. Just go to YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Music to hear what this band is all about. They are hilarious, but also super talented and hugely popular around the world. In this interview, Jeff tells the tale of Metallica's legal confrontation with Sony Music and the unlikely superstar musicians who cheered Metallica on and help them prevail in that battle. In addition to this long list of accomplishments, Jeff has also recorded in iconic studios around the world, including Electric Lady in New York City and Brown Bear in Nashville. He has also hired to build recording studios, and in fact built his own amazing studio in Milwaukee called Hamtone Audio. When Jeff is not touring or recording albums, he serves as the audio engineer for the NBA team, the Milwaukee Bucks and just recently started performing a solo act of original music. Jeff has been all in as a musician and recording engineer since about the age of 12. It was a lot of fun hearing about his journey and how he maintained a foothold in music for so many decades, despite the fact that music is one of those industries that really spits you out if you don't have what it takes, including talent, grit, creativity, and perseverance. So please enjoy this wide-ranging interview with Jeff Hamilton. All right, Jeff Hamilton, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm great. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Uh, we uh, are going to talk about your musical career and your recording career. And to to kick things off, I wanted to share my frame of reference for the conversation. I guess my, my biggest frame of reference is the Violent Femmes. And going back to the early to mid 80s, when I first became... I guess I, I developed a musical consciousness in terms of rock and punk and what was happening in that era and listened to the Violent Femmes and heard them at my school dances and, and really appreciated the unique vision they had in terms of taking a very simple approach to musicality and, and music in terms of like a snare drum and an acoustic bass and just the, the bare essentials for putting together a band but then also putting out just radical punk music. And, um, and that's, 
that's my frame of reference. And I know that you've played with the Violent Femmes for many years. And I, I just uh, wanted to share with you how much I loved that band and still do love them and deep admiration for anyone who gets the opportunity to play with that kind of band. So well done, Jeff. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So tell us, how did you first meet the band and then be invited to play with them? Uh, well, they're, everybody's from Milwaukee. So I've, I'm actually from Philadelphia, but we ended up settling in Milwaukee. But the band is from Milwaukee. So they're the big band to come out of Milwaukee, other than the band called the Bodines, which was around at that time as well and still together. And um, a friend of mine got the position to be their front of house engineer. And they were on tour and their guitar tech had met a woman in Spain and decided to marry her and stay in Spain. And he's still there to this day and they had a child and whatnot. And anyways, so my friend recommended that, that I take the position. And I had actually known Victor DiLorenzo, the drummer, the original drummer, for many years because he had a recording studio here in Milwaukee as well. So I've, I'd known him through that in the music scene here in Milwaukee. And I'd met Brian Ritchie maybe one time in the mid-80s at a, at a show at a bar somewhere, just said hi, you know, that kind of thing. So that's how I got my foot in the door with them. Nice. And what year was that? Uh, 2005. So tell us about what was going on between the 70s when you grew up and 2005, where you actually started playing with an iconic band like the Violent Femmes. Well, I, I got into music. I've always been into it. I have two older brothers, so I've, that helped like being exposed to all the up, up and coming stuff in the 70s, which, you know, it was all happening then, you know, these brand new, you know, here's this guy, David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, all these bands coming out, you know. And um, me and my, my friends would watch these music programs called uh, Don Krishner's Rock Concert and uh, the Midnight Special. And in addition to that, too, Saturday Night Live came out in that and they had bands, you know, that was a feature thing as well. So... I got exposed to all kinds of amazing music and was always drawn to music, basically, and the guitars, especially. You know, my, my role in the 70s when we discovered Kiss was as Paul Stanley. <laughs> when oh, we, nice. When, when we would dress up and we would have air guitar concerts for the neighborhood. You know, we'd set up in our garage and stuff. So this is, you know, many years before I even had a guitar. So that was just how, you know, I was exposed to all that. And it was just great. And finally got a guitar around 11 or 12 and I started playing and really dedicating myself to that. And like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to be a musician. What was your first guitar? It was a Hagstrom, a Hagstrom 1, I think it was called, or Hagstrom 2, which was a really, really cheap guitar, you know, probably cost maybe 75 or 100 bucks then. And I, I ended up, unfortunately, in my punk years of angst and whatever, I ended up smashing that guitar. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well done. <laughs> yeah, one of a couple that I did, which is very liberating. Thank you, Jimi Hendrix, for putting that into my head. <laughs> now I regret it because there's this iconic picture of David Bowie with an eye patch when he was Ziggy as Ziggy. Uh-huh. And he's holding this red guitar. And that's the exact same guitar that I my first guitar so and i was like ah oh, i wish i wasn't an idiot kid <laughs> and, and smash that guitar so. oh man yeah <laughs> hagstrom i never heard of a hagstrom is that just like did they die out in the 80s or something no they're still around it's a swedish a swedish company that's been around forever you know since the 50s i think and yeah they still make guitars and they're actually actually really good good quality you know mid-budget 
stuff, you know. And it's just ironically, I was just recently looking on Reverb and eBay and all that for that guitar, thinking, well, I should find that and just buy another one just so I can say this is the first, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they're going for like a thousand dollars now. No know? way. <laughs> yep. And it's all because of that picture of David Bowie, <laughs> which which I, oh. I'll send it to you. I'll send you that picture. You'll be like, oh, I've seen that picture. Oh, I'd love to see it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see it. So your two older brothers were musicians and um, your your parents, I assume, were pretty supportive of this, this um, I guess, effort to become rock stars. Yeah. My mother comes from a, a musical family and she had played piano and singing in the church and all that type of stuff. And my father, he has no musical thing whatsoever, but he was always a fan of it. You know, he turned me on to like Janis Joplin and Jim Croce and, and all that. And my mom turned me on to Hart and Neil Young, you know, as these bands were coming out and these artists were coming out, you know. She sounds and, like a cool lady. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's great. Paula Jean. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Hey, mom. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so my mom was always encouraging, you know, it's like great, you know, and we could, we had a full band set up in the basement. We took over the basement and we'd actually have shows and, you know, parties and our neighborhood kids would, you know, watch our bands and that as we were, when we were younger, before we actually started playing venues and whatnot. Wow. So, yeah. So it was, it was, that was a great thing, obviously, to have that encouragement, you know, but the flip side of that is like my father and my mother were like, well, if you're going to do this, be serious about it, you know, because it's not an easy gig, as they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, um, it's, it sounds like a nice, healthy balance of encouragement, but also caution. And uh, like, hey, if you're going to go down this road, you got to do it right to maximize your chances of success in that space. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I took it very seriously. I practice, you know, seven, eight hours a day, you know, just basically playing the guitar whenever I could. And the neighborhood I grew up was pretty fertile with everybody seemed to play. So that was a cool thing. You know, we could exchange, you know, ideas and hey, I figured out this song, show me that chord, that kind of thing. So that's great. So how many instruments did you become familiar with and actually get proficient in, in your younger years? Well, I started on guitar. That was my main love. But due to the fact that my oldest brother was a guitar player, just straight up, and my second oldest brother is a drummer, I wanted to fit in and play with them. I'm like, well, play bass, you know? So, so I ended up playing bass just by default. But a good, very good friend of mine, had also been playing bass for quite some time at that point. His name is Steve Post, and he was in a, a really popular metal, uh, heavy metal band that lasted a few years. Um, they were on Roadrunner Records called Realm. They actually have, have a resurgence coming on. They're playing a festival, a big metal festival in Europe coming up in April. But he, that was, so that, you know, it was, I was familiar with that instrument and I was around it through him. So I just picked up the bass and just so I could be able to fit in, you know, with, with the gang. So I, that was probably a year or so after I started playing guitar. So I've been playing both pretty much equally the same amount of time. And that's pretty much all I played for 10, 15 years or something like that. And then uh, a friend of mine gave me a mandolin in the early 90s. And I really fell for that. And uh, there's an artist who lives in New York now, but he was living in Milwaukee at the time called John Kruth. It was amazing. You should check him out, everybody. 
and he was a fantastic he's a fantastic mandolin player so i saw him early on and that influenced me and we became friends to this day and you know he's, he showed me some stuff and whatnot and then shortly after that i was playing in a band and I had record, produced recording and produced an artist and he had this lap, a thing called a lap steel. And he's like, Hey, I want, I want a lap steel on a track. Can you play this? And in this business, you just say, yes, <laughs> yep, yep, I can play it. <laughs> and, and just, I laid a track down and he loved it. And he gave me this lap steel as gratitude and payment for the track, which I was floored as 1939 national that I saw. Holy had. smoke. Yeah. And, so then I started at then I started playing lap steel a lot more up, and um, so those are the main instruments that I play that you know I proficiency on you know, guitar, bass, mandolin, and lap steel. And then just from there, you know, I've played sitar as well. And one of the prerequisites for the Violent Femmes is to be on stage and whatnot. I had to play some kind of horn instrument, and I which I never have done. And uh, so I decided to try the trumpet which think, hey, this is going to be easy, just blow into it, right? But there's this thing called amateur that you have to get to even get a note out of it. And that took me a while to even be able to get a note. But in the meantime, it just sounded like a dying whale and whatnot. And so the Femmes guys got a kick out of it when I would play that. And I was just so bad that they ended up featuring me on some solos in the night just to, you know, yeah. listen, to, listen to how bad this is in the crowd would go nuts because <laughs> it was just terrible. This know? is punk rock. Exactly. And that's, that's for the Horns of Dilemma, which is their backing thing. If, if anybody sees the band, you'll see a, a group of people in the back, you know, yeah. that come up for a few songs and they just do these atonal jams of, you know, for one, one of the shows I remember at the Fillmore, we had 23 people playing in the Horns of Dilemma, all, wow. various, all various horn instruments and, you know, all kinds of bizarre instruments and whatnot. And the dilemma at the time was, is Jeff going to get through this song? Exactly. <laughs> is the audience going to stick around? <laughs> and the, and the, the best, like the best part about that is they're traveling saxophone players. They would have guys in Europe and America and America. It was Steve McKay from uh, the Stooges. And so he, he was a super sweet guy and he loved it. He was, he was like encouraging me and I was really bad. We'd play. But then we'd play Europe, and it was Dick Perry, who you would know if you're a Pink Floyd fan. He did all the saxophone on Dark Side of the Moon. And oh, my goodness. Here. So he was the guy that I'm sitting at, and he was just like, oh, this guy's terrible. I can't play him. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we got along really well, and he was just, you know, it was, it was hilarious to me that I'm playing next to these iconic, <laughs> you know, horn players or saxophone players, you know, just. Yeah. <laughs> so super fun. So you were you were touring Europe with the Violent Femmes? Yeah, 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 all over yeah. all over the world actually with them. That's and how many years did that last? Uh, they broke up in 2007, then got back together again in 2012 for Coachella, where they did a reunion, and then that ended up being until 2016. And uh, then they kind of changed their they slimmed down their world touring and whatnot, and you know changed managements and stuff, and and it ended up. I got offers to do other things that were a little bit more lucrative and I had to eat. So I ended up uh, exiting that, but still worked with them as well in the studio and, and various shows where, you know, if I'm in the town that they're at or they come to Milwaukee, I'll sit in with them as well. So, yeah. So we still have a great relationship together. So right on. 
Mm-hmm. So when you're playing with the fems, are you in sort of in awe of the place that they hold in history? I mean, you you grew up in that era, and I imagine because they're from the same town, they were a big part of your musical consciousness and upbringing. Well, actually, on my end, not really. I knew about them, and I went to a show. I think the only time I had seen them was in 1985 at a festival we have here called Summerfest, which is the largest musical festival in the world. You should come check it out. It's amazing. So anyways, I went to the show. These girls are with, let's go see this band. And we ended up dancing all night and it was super fun. And that was that. I was more into, at that time, I was more into progressive rock, um, jazz and things like that, you know. So I wasn't this fawning over, oh my God, Violent Femmes. Yeah. You know, which... Which maybe helped for me to be, you know, not awestruck when I was with them. I'm like, who the oh, Violent Femmes? You guys still around? You know, that's right. Kinda how, that's kind of how I looked at it. <laughs> and I didn't realize, I didn't realize the scope of it. And then obviously, you know, touring the world with them and seeing the fanatic cult fan base that they have. And, you know, you're in a foreign country and nobody speaks English yet. They're singing all the words to this song, you know? Right. So... Yeah, so I then I began to realize that, and it's that it's amazing. It's super cool. You know, they have a very unique footprint in the history of music. You know, without being this major, major, major U two type, or you know, that type of band. But they're, right, yeah, they're not an arena type of band, and they never were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you're right. I mean, there's a, there's a cult status that I think that they still hold, and um, it's interesting how that works because you're in a band called Metallica, right? Yep. Yeah, and and um, it seems like, and and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But it's it seems like in Europe there are fan bases that really get into niche type of bands that don't make it big in America. But you know, I'm thinking of like one of the classic documentaries of the last decade was Anvil. I don't know if you ever saw yep. Anvil, oh, yeah. but. I had them at the cl- at the club that I book here in town. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <That's awesome>. recently. <laughs> and I I remember seeing that documentary, and of course I I had not really heard of them when I was watching the the documentary. But I see just how nuts the fans go. In it was a Japan mm-hmm. that they yeah, and um and there's a lot of bands like that that just have these huge fan bases outside the U.S. Yep, and it sounds like the Violent Femmes really took advantage of that. Yeah, and they're. Their first platinum records were in New Zealand and Australia. They were open arms, welcomed in Australia. Just they're worshipped over there. And Brian Ritchie ended up moving to Tasmania, so he's there now and has been for quite a few years. So that was one of the stops, you know, on our tours. We would do Australia around this time of year. And um, what was great for me is my father and my stepmother moved to the Australia and then early 80s and I had never been there until the Femmes hired me like we're going to Australia like oh I'm gonna go see my dad I haven't seen forever (laughs) and and he he had came out to a show that was in Brisbane where they live and we're playing and I'm featured on a bunch of you know backing instruments and some solos and whatnot throughout the night and he was just astounded he didn't know he had never seen me play because my parents were divorced since the early 70s he knew I play, but he never actually saw me perform. So that was that was a really cool, cool thing for me, you know, to be able to, you know, go to this and see my father and connect with my father. And it, and it was all through music. Yeah. So that's that's fantastic. And you get to travel the world mm-hmm. and see places that you would never otherwise see. Mm-hmm. Well, and- one of the things when I was younger is I didn't want to go anywhere 
I made this like pact. I don't want to go to New York City unless I'm going there with a band when I'm playing. Hmm. And I didn't want to go to LA unless I was going there with a band playing or producing a record or something like that. And, and all of that happened. So that's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I sort of made that pact about the um, Sundance Film Festival. Uh, I went there one time, long time ago, and it was like, you know what? I don't want to come back here unless I'm invited. You know, I, mm-hmm. I want to be part of this. I want to be part of the filmmaking community. And that never happened. So I just went back as a, <laughs> just as a <laughs> buyer several more times. And then just recently, I got invited to um, be part of the press there. So, oh, fantastic. Yeah, I'll be, this is my first time going in January um, with press credentials. Oh, right on. Yeah, so I'll be on the red carpet. Yeah, scoot past the lines. Yeah, (laughs) it's very very exciting. But uh, the Violent Femmes work sounds like ended in about 2016, but then you you recorded with them as well, right? Yeah, well, my touring part of it ended. So, um, but you know, in the couple months of that was over the summer, and we did a bunch of touring then, and then shortly after that, they called me up to do some recording with them in New York, and we went to Electric Lady and did a live broadcast from Jimi Hendrix's studio, which was another incredible moment for oh all of goodness. for all of us. You know, obviously, just being in that space, playing and recording, and and then I ended up recording some tracks with them at the, what was known as the Power Station in New York, which cranked out every album you you know in the eighties: Dire Straits, Money for Nothing, all that stuff, Sting. So another, yet another amazing studio that, you know, I got to record with them. And then um, shortly after that, that was been early 2017, I, they asked me to be their front of house engineer for the Australian tour. So <laughs> it's kind of a, kind of a bizarre thing. You know, I started out as a guitar tech and ended up playing with them, producing the records. Then I was the front of house engineer. <laughs> What is, what is the front of house engineer? Uh, the guy who mixes the band live. Oh, okay. So live, the live sound. Yep. Nice. Yeah. So I mean, I don't really know anybody else that has that. <laughs> I haven't met anybody else that has that same type of, you know, it's kind of that, a bizarre. That's a, a neat trajectory. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's, it's really what's so cool. And I'm, I, I've looked at your bio on your website, uh, which is hamtoneaudio.com, right? Yes. And you have this, the most eclectic job history that, I mean, it, it, and it's all music related. Yep. Um, but in terms of like playing in bands and recording and also being in charge of the, you know, you're the audio engineer for the Milwaukee Bucks and you're, you're just doing all of these things that are sound recording and music related. When you were 12 years old and you're picking up that Hagstrom guitar and, and you're listening to your older brothers play, did you envision that you would be where you are today and that you would have had that trajectory? No, not at that time, because I simply wanted to be a guitar player and a rock and roll band famous that, you know, all that young type of thinking, you know, I wanted to be good, you know, but I also wanted to be successful on guitar. And just from utilitarian's aspect, I got into recording because it just, I never thought, okay, I'm going to start studying recording. You know, it really didn't exist back then. You know, there was the only magazine with that was called Mix Magazine. It was very high end, but there were, no like recording programs, you know, like there is today. There wasn't full sale recording or any of that stuff. 
Um, but I never actually even thought about that as a career or anything. I, to me, it was simply, okay, we wrote this song. Now we want to record it. So the way I went about that is I had a, a boom box, um, which was a cassette based thing with speakers that you carried around for all the younger listeners. Nice. <laughs> which I carried feel a, old now. Yeah. Which I carried around with me all the time in school and playing <laughs> music and, you know, um, those are those days, you know, people had those, but anyways, uh, I would just set up this boom box in front of us and the band in the basement and we'd play the song. And then I started thinking, well, I want to put a guitar solo. How do I do that? Like light bulb went off. Well, I'll just get another boom box, put that at the other end of the room, crank, turn up the, what we just recorded from boom box one, crank it up really loud, put an amp in the middle of the two boom boxes, hit record on the new boom box, boom box two, and then hit play on the first one and then play along, do my solo. And that was like primitive overdubbing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's how I did that for a while. And then a kid down the block actually got a four track cassette recorder, which when they started to become a little bit more, you know, uh, available to consumers and whatnot. And then I just delved into that. I would borrow that from him and, you know, start recording the band and we had multi-track we could do four tracks oh my god it's like the beatles <laughs> <You know? laughs> and i've learned all kinds of techniques doing stuff on that four track and i bought i bought one of myself several years after that and then what happened was bands around the neighborhood hey can you record me you know my band so i would just do that and i never even then it was never even a thought to me it was just like part of the whole package you know, you played instruments, well, you got to record. So it's the same, you know, you just deal with it. Yeah. And then uh, a band that I was in in the early 90s called True Heart Susie, um, which was very popular around here in Milwaukee and regionally. And we had, a, you know, we were at the desk of Violin Records and all that stuff. Didn't get the deal. But, but anyways, uh, we went in to record at a studio here in town and called Cornerstone Recording, which was one of the only places in town at the time. And the engineer... You know, I was very particular what I wanted to hear and how to go about it. And, and the engineer after the session is like, you're really into this. Do you want a job doing this? And I'm like, wow, yeah. So that was my introduction into an actual commercial recording studio. And I haven't looked back since. You know, I've had a, had a studio ever since. Nice. And so it sounds like really kind of an organic journey to be yeah. a recording engineer because it's not like you're like you know what when i grow up i want to be a recording engineer it, it was more like well I, I want to be a badass musician and i want to play in bands and i want to have a body of work and in order to do that i need to learn how to record exactly and uh then that actually so and the production side of it to me is the same type of thing it's like i never set out i want to be a producer the only reason i call myself as a producer is because someone in the band that I'm recording says, did that sound good? So they're actually asking my opinion. And then that would lead to, well, yeah, I think it would sound better if you change this chorus, you know, change mm -hmm. that lyric, you know, so now I'm a producer. <laughs> and then what ended up happening in about the mid nineties of these bands at that particular studio, it was, you know, Milwaukee is very vibrant, music scene here that's incredible uh, original music scene so i'm recording these bands and they were like wow we really like how the record sounds can you come out and mix us live and i'm just like i've never done that at all other than 
with the bands when I was growing up, we had these primitive PAs and I would end up setting that up and turning on the microphones and whatnot. Once again, never thinking I'm going to be a live sound engineer. Right. You know, it's just, once again, it's part of the, this is what you do because, you know, the people have to hear us loud. So we have to have a PA. And you know? mm-hmm. so then that led to me getting into the live sound uh, end of things. And thus, you know, here I am doing, you know, for the Bucks and Marquette and various bands and the Violent Femmes. I've, you know, toured with them doing front of house and many, many other bands. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. So tell us about Metallica. Metallica. Wow. You should all go look at the Wikipedia page because it's a very crazy, wild story. <laughs> um, so they're friends of mine. The band's been around since 99 or something, 2000. So here in Milwaukee, we have this thing that was started in a club in the early 80s that's called Spoof Fest. And the whole premise is, is you get together with your buddies, pick a band, and you spoof them. So the idea is to play the music as good as you can but make fun of their history and whatnot and, and camp it up on stage, mm-hmm. you know? And so there'd be skits and whatnot involved with, within the show. You know, like each band can do like 20 minutes or 30 minutes and it's still going on to this day. And it's super popular here. We sell out two nights in a row at big clubs here and whatnot. So back in the day, as this was early on, these friends of mine got together and they decided, well, let's do, you know, Beatles meet Metallica. And they got together and wrote a few songs and recorded a cassette that they're going to give out at this spoof fest event. And they were like early on in the bill and played their set throughout their cassettes and whatnot. The band wasn't called Beatallica at all. It was just, you know, this band. I wasn't at that particular one, so I don't remember if they named it anything or... So anyways, they threw out this cassette and there's a guy in the audience that got the cassette uploaded it onto his website back then, which is, you know, not very, you know, that's in the early days too of, you know, people having that. And um, he, from what I understand the story, he got a million downloads from his site, from that cassette. Oh my goodness. And, And people were loving it. Then the next thing he got was a cease and desist, we're suing you letter by Sony records (laughs) and he freaked out and the next thing he did was track down the singer of that and said hey you know this is my name blah blah uh yeah i got that cassette and i uploaded it to my site and we had a million downloads and at this point this isn't a band by the way it was just made for a one-off thing a year later they're getting this call they're like what are you talking about and the guy's like yeah and i named it Beatallica. (laughs) (laughs) and uh here's the thing sony's suing me for you know millions of dollars and and the singer is just like who is now the singer he wasn't then because it band didn't exist he's like what the hell are you talking about (laughs) and he explained this and the guy's just like the singer's like what the you know so somehow or another Rolling Stone or NPR got a hold of this story and did a story on it. 
and it was on NPR and whatnot, then Rolling Stone, I don't know which came first, but there was an article in Rolling Stone about it and they picked it up and Lars read that article and he tracked down the singer's home phone number and, and called him at home <laughs> and his wife answered, the singer's wife answered and she wasn't a metalhead. She doesn't know any of that stuff. And it's like, yes, yeah, is Lars Ulrich from Metallica. I'm looking for uh, James, Michael Tierney. <laughs> It's like, honey, honey, there's a Lars on the phone for you. And he was in the other room. And he's like, ah, screw them. That's my friends messing with me. Just hang up. So she hangs up. He, Lars calls back. It's like, this is Lars Ulrich. I want to talk to you know, Michael about Vitalica. And she's like, what? You know? And so finally he got on the phone and he's like, look, quit fucking you know, messing with me here. This, you know, he's about to hang up. Lars like, don't hang up. Don't hang up. <laughs> like, and then he's, you know, the singer is very, very, very knowledgeable about all things heavy metal you know, and, mm-hmm. and Beatles and whatnot. But he's very, you know, he can tell you who played on what record and uh, blah, blah, blah. So they started talking and Lars is like, you know what? Fuck Sony. Excuse my French. Uh, <laughs> literally said that. And it's like, we're going to give you our legal team for free to fight Sony. And you guys can use whatever you want from us because we think this is hilarious. Oh, and, you know. That's no, great. Yeah. And so then Sony got wind of that. And they dropped the lawsuit with the caveat that they retain 100% royalties and worldwide distribution is the story that I know. So from that, then the band got signed to a label called Olio, which is a comedy label, but also a label that would have classic rock guys like Ray Manzarek. They released a couple of his solo records. And, but, uh, you know, they George Lopez is a big comedian on the record. So it's kind of this mixture of classic rock side guys kind of you know and then comedy yeah so the the band signed to them and then the worldwide distribution was through sony which is fantastic because it went everywhere yeah you know around the world and then the booking agents started calling and 20 years later here we are we just uh, signed a deal for playing a festival in moscow coming up in may and montreal and so and we've been all around the world as well (laughs) so i Perfect timing. So when the Femmes broke up in 2007, briefly, you know, I was back in Milwaukee to have a gig. They called me. It's like, hey, do you want to audition for this Metallica? My line, like I use with the Violent Femmes, I use it. I mean, you guys still around? <laughs> you know, it's like, right. fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, they don't say, you know, screw off. We're getting somebody else. But um, so I auditioned for them. And the reason that happened was I was in a thrash band called 911 back in the day in the 80s and whatnot and we played with everybody like nirvana's first show in milwaukee on the bleach tour was with us on a tuesday night at a club oh my goodness and, uh, and we open up for you know fugazi's first show was with us you know it's 911 band wow so the singers band back then opened up for us and he called me up you know 25 years later he's like hey do you still know how to thrash pick and i'm like yeah of course it's like riding a bike you know mm-hmm. and so i auditioned and got the gig and now i am gerg hammettson the third of Vitalica, <laughs> going on my uh 15th year with them <laughs> that's your alter ego <laughs> yeah because yep, we all have the alter ego names which are some of them are pretty hilarious <laughs> so. that's great so if, if Sony maintains 100% royalties, um, does that mean album sales? I mean, can, can you guys... For publishing, for the publishing. Oh, for publishing. Okay. Yeah. So you still get what's called mechanical, which is very little, you know, anyways. But the publishing is where it's at. But that was their deal. And 
otherwise they're like, we're just going to shut you down. You know, you this can't exist. We're not giving you any rights to use Beatles in any way, shape or form. Right. And unfortunately, what ended up happening with that is we released a few records on Olio and we were up for our option. And I said, yeah, we'll do another record. Uh, some new president or something of Sony got wind of us somehow. We don't know. I think he got tagged in an email or whatever, talking to our label. And he was like, I don't know why you guys are allowed to do this. This is an abomination on the Beatles, blah, 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 <laughs> on and on. Oh, and so when we were recording, about to record our last record with Olio, which is called Abbey Load, oh. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, they would not allow us to do our own lyrics, which we had always done which was the whole thing. That's the part of it. You yeah. Know, it's like making fun of the metal scene and hey, Beatles and it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They wouldn't allow us to do that. Their contract with us said, you can release this record, but you have to use the original lyrics and melodies. And we're like, we went all back and forth. The man's like, screw this. We're not going to do that. And I said to them, well, if we do this, then maybe we can get more opportunities for licensing for films and whatever because it's not a weird publishing thing because Vitalica is a strange, it's its own entity. You know, we've talked at like Harvard and Yale and because it's its own, we're not a parody band like Weird Al. You know, mm-hmm. we actually take songs that, that I say they smell like Beatles and Metallica and we create our own songs out of it. Right. You know, but there's, you know, there's some songs that we do parody and we just change the lyrics and whatnot. But anyways, that, that was insane, crazy stuff for publishing lawyers to deal with. How, what do we, we, you know, and still to this day, they don't know how to do it. So, any, <laughs> so anyways, I talked the band into doing this last record, you know, just for the possibility, well, it's almost a Beatles parody. So then we can get more publishing, you know, opportunities and whatnot. So it sounds complicated. Yeah. Oh yeah. For on the legal side. Absolutely. It's totally nuts. Well, if you guys are looking for a lawsuit on copyright infringement of your material, you may want to look at the movie yesterday, uh, which used, <laughs> Hey dude, <laughs> yep. they, they and, ripped it right off. Didn't they? <laughs> and, and we have a great story of that. Of course. Really? <laughs> yes. So our video guy's name is, his nickname is Weber and he's involved in video, although he goes all over the world and whatnot. And he loved the band early on. He's done all of our videos and, so he got wind of that. He was in that trailer and he was at the premiere in New York of that film and he met the director and he talked to the director. Like, yeah, I don't know. I can't remember his name. And uh, he was like, hey, man, it's so great that you use Metallica reference. Hey, dude. And the director's like, who? Oh, no. And he's like, he's like, you don't know who that is? And he's like, no. And he gave him the record and like, the guy's like, oh, my God, this is great. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So secretly, he's like, oh, shit. I just. <laughs> and that's what he said to him. He's yeah. like, so you guys going to sue me? <laughs> you know? Right. So we're like, no, 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 it's fine. I just got to laugh. But now we're on his radar. And he's like, yeah, I'll try to use you guys for some stuff. And, oh, and that's, that's cool. Yeah. And that's the bizarre thing about this band. You know, it's we've got just it's a wide range of fans all over all over the world and like uh dream theaters mike portnoy the drummer you know he loves us we've opened up for them he'll play with us like literally on the drums for a few songs and you know it's kind of bizarre and getting back to suing whatever there's actually a tribute band in south america in brazil of tribute band (laughs) how does does that work that's so meta (laughs) it's like there's so many layers to this story. It's, yeah, that's why I'm saying it's like go do the research. It's bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> you know? but it's still going. You know, we we just treat it like yeah, whatever. You know, it's every couple of years we'll get a call, and 
I think because of that movie, we, our website was blowing up with messages. Oh my God, you guys, I saw you with Ed Sheeran and all this. Mm-hmm. So now we're getting offers again to play these major festivals all over the place. So, so how did, how did Moscow happen? I, they just phoned up the singer. The singer handles all that stuff. And we don't actively seek out anything like it's, yeah, well, they, they find us. Moscow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they find us and it's always some kind of metal festival or a Beatles festival, you know, that, that, that calls us. You know. Yeah. Well, that should be interesting. That'd be your first time in Moscow. Yes. Yep. Well, and for the whole band. Yeah. Be careful there, man. Oh yeah. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and the Femmes didn't get out that far as well. Like be the uh, Betalica, We got out to Hungary was as far, uh, East as we did that in Vital yeah. or, and the Femmes we played Istanbul was the furthest out. So yeah. Oh looking looking, looking forward to going to Mother Russia. <laughs> right on. So um tell me how you connected with Dennis D. Young and Uriah Heap, because I see that on your resume as well. Um so the Dennis D. Young thing happened, uh Violent Femmes are doing some shows in Southern California and we never carried gear we just call what's called renting the back line and the back line is the amps and things like that so we carry guitars and that's it and the company that we hired or was hired for us to provide our amps and whatnot the guy showed up um his name is john oshima lives in san francisco that's his company and he happened to be at that show and he at the time he was also tour manager for gwen stefani and steve miller and dennis DeYoung. so and this company is a side thing. So just by chance, he happened to be, you know, none of his guys could make it to this gig and, or he wanted to go see the fans or something. And so he was there with the gear and I was the liaison to the band. Okay. You know, cause I'm, I'm still a guitar tech with the fans. You right. Know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I met him, I'm setting up everything and, you know, I play the show and I tear down everything, load it back up with him. And he looks at me, he's like, you're amazing, man. I'm like, well, what's up? It's like, I just saw you like deal with all the gear and everything and play the entire show with these guys and then tear it down. And, and it's like, where are you based out of? I'm like, Milwaukee. It's like, that's great because I'm managing Dennis Young and I need somebody in that region for shows to do backline. I'm like, great, call me up, you know? So I got that call, did a couple of gigs with, with Dennis and was backstage talking to him and he's just reminiscing about, you know, yeah, I, I miss the seventies when, you know, real guitar players had Gibson Les Pauls and Marshall stacks. And I just love that. And now they have all these boutique small amps and all this. And he looks at me, he goes, you look like a rocker. I bet, <laughs> I bet you have a Les Paul and a Marshall stack. And it's like, as a matter of fact, Dennis, that's my, that's my setup. <laughs> no <know>? way. Thank <laughs> yep. like, you, man. Yeah. And then I proceeded to tell him the story. It's like, you know, one of the first songs I ever learned on my own, I was really proud of was Sweet Madden Blue. He's like, oh, that's great. He's like, you know what? There's a couple of songs that we play. They only had one guitar player and, uh, at the time. I think they have two now, or he has two now. He's like, you know what? Why don't you play rhythm guitar back by the monitor council? I'm like four or five songs. I'm like, I'd be honored to. Oh, you know? wow. <laughs> so I ended up like, come sail away, Sweet Madden Blue, Rock of the Paradise, all these yeah. And I'm back by the monitor council. You know, he's like, you're not in the video. You're not in the pictures. Nobody knows you. So I just want you to be back by the monitors. You know, you're oh. not a member of the band. I'm like, I don't care. It's fine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but every night he would come, he would run across the stage and like, give me the heavy metal horns, you know, and then run back on. <laughs> so here I'm like this sur- surreal moment. So here I'm playing come sail away with the guy who wrote it. <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. It's like, <laughs> you know, 
and and Sweet Madam Blue, one of the first songs I ever figured out in my entire life. You know, it's and that's it, why you listed as ghost rhythm guitar because yes. he was hiding you back there. Huh? Correct. Correct. So what happened to Sticks? Where what happened to the band? Uh, they went through a bunch of stuff that I, you'd have to go and research that. I don't want to get into any of yeah. that. That was, that was way before my thing. So. Yeah. So, but he's obviously able to, to use that music and play it. Yeah. Perform. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 And he still performs. It's mainly regionally in the Midwest area that he does. Um, I've noticed, um, but yeah, he's, he still plays, you know? Yeah. And, uh, his voice is incredible. Oh yeah. To this still, day. It's great. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, the Uriah Heap thing is kind of funny as well. So way back when I started, when I had the four-track recording things, I worked at a local record store that was called Mainstream. It was the big chain here in Wisconsin, Mainstream Records. And one of the young kids that worked there, he, he asked me one night, hey, I got this song. Can you record it for me? And so we went back to my, to, I was living still at home at the time and went to my bedroom that I had turned into a recording studio <laughs> with quotation marks and recorded his song. And I played slide guitar on this particular song that this kid had written. Fast forward 20 years later or something, he's the production manager for a big casino here called Potawatomi Casino that has major acts all the time like casinos do. Mm-hmm. So they booked Uriah Heap for two nights. They were going to perform the Demons and Wizards record in its entirety for the first time, um, at least in the in the U.S. And he called me up. He's like, hey, uh, you still play slide guitar? I'm like, absolutely. He's like, well, because uh, I have an artist that, that wants, that needs that for a few songs for their show. I'm like, okay, great. Uh, who is it? He's like, Uriah Heap? Do you know who that is? I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> And here's how I know it. I was a big fan and still am in the 70s. And I saw Uriah Heep open up for Kiss in 1977. Oh, my goodness. Which means my very first concert that I've ever seen was Uriah Heep, the first band. (laughs) It's like full circle, man. It's totally bizarre. And then this kid, I remembered that I played slide guitar and called me, you know, and I walk in to this thing, you know, okay, show up for rehearsal. I walk in and they're... They're all just like inter- get introduced and I'm like, hey, the bass player, unfortunately, he passed from cancer shortly after. His name is Trevor Boulder, who happened to be the bass player of Ziggy Stardust, you know, David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust band <laughs> amongst other bands. And so I'm just, wow, this is, you know, this is crazy, like totally surreal for me, you know. And uh, we ended up jamming, you know, Mick, met Mick Fox, who's the original member. It's like, let's jam blues and E. So we jammed for about 10 minutes and after we got done, he's like, it looks like we got our man <laughs> and played the shows. And that was great. And you know, hung out with those guys. I told Mick that story. He's like, Mick, I got to tell you this story. So you're the first band I ever saw in my life. And now I'm playing with you. It's like, good on you, mate. That's great. Oh, were you rocking the national slide? Guitar? Uh, no, no. It's a actual electric slide. Oh, okay. So just yeah, yeah. standard. And they, they loved it. They had me come up on a couple more songs and played a couple dates with them. And, and we're, we're friends to this day. So that's so badass. Yeah. Just, so just bizarre. I'm looking at all these, these venues that you've performed at and talk about iconic, uh, you know, your red rocks in Denver, Coachella main stage and in Indio Fillmore, San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Greek out of all of these venues that you've been on stage, looking out at the crowd and, and doing what you love, which one really stands out as your favorite and why? Well, the Fillmore was just because of the, even though that wasn't, 
you know, the back in the day, Jimi Hendrix, Fillmore, whatever. It's just, you know, that iconic name. And just, I mean, all of them really, but that one for me, you know, because I just loved all those. I grew up in the 60s and early 70s bands and all that, you know. Mm-hmm. And they always hear live at the Fillmore and, you know, they're playing the Fillmore and, you know. So that one was a, was a big one for me. Yeah. And then, you know, but, you know, Sydney Opera House, obviously, it's like, okay. And that's, you know, the Femmes, they got booked into all those places because they, that's the, once again, the kind of the bizarre side of them. They'll, they can play punk rock clubs and then go and play these iconic venues as well you know yeah what about the central park stage new york city that was super cool they've it's their it's not the one if you're thinking the paul simon you mm-hmm. know they're legendary they have this you know series that they do every summer and that was cool but unfortunately for us we got rained out so within like one or two songs and oh. then so but just that, being yeah. there in central park i mean yeah, new york city and playing exactly yeah, yeah. That's got to be amazing. But what was great about that was the makeup show. We played an iconic venue that closed shortly after that, that had been around for since the seventies as well. Nice. But, uh, yeah. So that was super cool. You know, the, the makeup show is like five months later or something in winter. So what do you, what do you do when you're not playing in bands and performing and recording albums? Uh, extracurricular activities of, my father uh, gave me a present of uh, scuba diving lessons. You know, shortly after that time, I told you about when Femmes played there and I reconnected with him. So, oh, in Australia? Uh, yeah, yep. So I got my certification in the Great Barrier Reef and that's, that's I love it. It was incredible. I'd wish I had done it 20 some years earlier. But uh, yeah, that's, that's my favorite thing. Right on. Because, you know, every, everything else I'm doing, you know, I'm playing bands and whatnot. It's, it's all consuming. You know, yeah. so, sounds like everything anyway. else is, is completely audio or yeah. music related yep correct yeah. which i love to do you know that's it's super fun to me you know that's but awesome. if but you know any things like that that's scuba diving hands down is my my favorite activity you know yeah so is your next gig with Metallica on tour uh i've got actually I have a trio a, buddy, a few buddies of mine that we've been around for quite a long time, just getting together, singing songs. We're doing something this Thursday for a holiday party that we do every year. Vitalica just played Milwaukee um, this past Friday. I just played a show with my tribute band, Then Lizzie, which is a Thin Lizzie tribute band, which is super fun. Um, so yeah, the next gig coming up is that. Then I have a solo show, my first ever solo show coming up here in Milwaukee at place called the county clare small irish bar nice yeah that's so that's terrifying me really because i'm not a singer troubadour guy you know you're used to being uh, shoved behind the speakers by dennis de young (laughs) exactly (laughs) i'm a a great backing guy you know but but they call me they keep persisting i'm like all right i've damn it i gotta do this yeah so that's my that's the one that i'm like freaking out about you know the small pub basically (laughs) that's and i'm more nervous about that than any of any other thing i've ever done what are you you gonna play Uh, i have several original songs that nobody's ever heard and so i'm gonna do that and i decided to like break it down into the different instruments you know i'll play a few songs on mandolin play a few songs of guitar etc it's only like an hour they only want me to do like an hour so right so i'm gonna like break it down and then tell some stories you know do that whole that whole thing you know so a nice. couple, couple, got a couples. lot of, lot of great like stories yeah yeah super fun and then and then the big shows coming up are um 
in around May, we're playing Montreal and Moscow and some Midwest dates with Vitalica, and which I'm sure by that time there will be more dates added to all of to all of that stuff. So, well, that's super exciting. Yeah. So, um, where can people find you online? Uh, I see HamtoneAudio.com is your your website with your bio, and it looks like they you have some show dates on there and a good resource for people if they want to see you in Milwaukee. Any other uh, social media uh, places they can go check you out? Yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram, Hamtone Audio, and Facebook under my name, Jeff Hamilton. And then uh, obviously Vitalica has their own pages and whatnot. So, and uh, yeah. Great. And I, and I will update my site. I haven't done that actually in a while. <laughs> so the beginning uh, of summer. <laughs> so. You know, for, for my listeners, I recommend going to that site because there's a lot of really cool pictures of Jeff jamming out with all kinds of iconic bands and, and musicians. And, um, and his bio is, is really impressive. So go check him out, hamtoneaudio.com. And if you have a chance to see him live, looks like there's lots of opportunities in Milwaukee. And if you want to make the trip in Moscow and Montreal in May. Uh, yeah, no, I wanted to mention um, a new project that I'm involved in through me doing some production. It's called Ice Island. And there's a, a duo in the Midwest here called Codebreaker that's fairly popular all over amongst DJs and whatnot for like electronic music and that kind of thing and synth pop. And, and I was, uh, got called by the singer to produce his new project, which is called Ice Island. And I ended up playing bass and guitar on it. And he, it, that's the next thing I'm going to be involved in as well, as far as a new, a new feather in the hat, another nice. band. So, and he just put up, he created a Spotify account. I don't know if we put up any of the music yet, but uh, that's all in the works. But Ice Island is something to check out as well. Ice Island. Check it out, listeners. And, um, and it sounds like no shortage of projects for you to, to yeah. be involved in. Yeah, and this is completely, you know, left field. It's like synthesizer pop stuff, you know, it's things I've never done, you know, so, but super fun. So, very cool. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jeff, for being on the show. Thanks, Brian. It's a blast. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time. And as always, go find your dream path.